Good morning, everybody. Hello, hello. Yes, it is a good morning. So we believe. We are continuing our series in We Believe. And of course, this is the Apostles' Creed that the We Believe series is based on. And we are excited to share with you about We Believe. And today I get to talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, the Apostles' Creed is a written summary of the core beliefs of the early church. You could say it's the thing, it's the thing that we agree on and that it's the oldest and simplest creed of multiple creeds that exist. And it's 111 words compared to your whole Bible, uh, a Trinitarian view of the Bible that presents uh, what they do and what they're all about. And it's recognized by Christian groups and traditions around the world. And I'm gonna share with you a story today of how that impacted me as a teenager. And so, I believe, uh, read with me, which I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And so today we're talking about that part of the creed that says that he rose from the dead. He literally, bodily, rose from the dead. One of the great miracles of the Bible. It's been called the miracle that trans transforms people's lives for eternity. It is the rock of Gibraltar of Christian evidences. It is the good news of good news. And at Easter, it's the celebration that we have that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? And yet, the world has a resistance to this. There's some non-resurrection viewpoints. The Swoon theory, of which there's multiple, says that Jesus went unconscious somehow on the cross, and when they put him in that cool, comfortable tomb, he was resuscitated. Kind of hard to believe after you heard last week the suffering that he went through and the expert efforts of the Roman government to execute him on the cross and produce death. And then the other viewpoint is in Matthew 28, it's the stolen body theory. That uh, when Jesus wasn't in the tomb on the third day, they had to come up with a story that they spread and, and the guards actually helped to promote this, that's, that the disciples had somehow come and, and beat them all up and thrown them away and that they took the body of Jesus, which is another hard thing to believe. And then the third viewpoint is that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead physically, that his spirit or ghost manifested somehow afterwards. And these are the main non-resurrection viewpoints. We're going to take a look at the reasons for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And the question we're answering is, why is it so important that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? What difference does it make in your life? And so the first point is, we're going to look at Jesus' claims. Because any claim that you make, people can evaluate and assess to whether it's valid or invalid. Some claims are are very light and fluffy, like you could claim, I make the best food in the county. Okay, how do you really test that? How do you really compare that? But if you claim, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave, that's verifiable. That, that's really something. I mean, I don't know anyone who's made that claim and actually done that, except for Jesus Christ. And so let's look at his claims. Let's look what he said. First of all, Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will what? Never see death. That is a wild claim. And then just several verses later, he makes a second one, very emphatic, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am, which is the statement that Yahweh made to Moses on Mount Sinai when he told him, Go and tell your people, I am has sent you with this message. And so Jesus is claiming both divinity and he's claiming to be the source of eternal life early in his ministry. In another place, John 8, 28, Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, which is an allusion to him being lifted up on the cross, then you will know that I am he, then that I do just what the Father has taught me. These are claims Jesus is making. And then Jesus said to a lady, I am the resurrection and the life. That even though you will die, whoever believes in me will live. Wouldn't that be so cool to know that if you were to die in a car accident or if you were to lay your head on the pillow and you were to just pass away in your sleep, that though your body would die, your soul would go instantly to be with Jesus Christ in heaven. (laughs) What a cool idea. And that's what he's saying to the people. And so in another place, the Jews respond to him, What sign can you give us to prove your authority to do all this? He had just just gone into the temple. The money changers were there. He had turned over their temples, and he had chased them out and told them that this is my father's house. And so Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Wow. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and then they believed. You see, the disciples didn't get it in the three years that they were following him. There's things he said, and they just didn't get. I don't know whether they didn't want to believe it, or whether they just had a hard time conceiving of it, or whether it just sounded so threatening to them, they didn't want to believe it was literal. I don't know which it was. But afterwards, after his death, 
His disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed that he had said to them, I will rise from the dead after three days. And so a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but he said, none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now you remember the story of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and share the gospel and see people saved. He was resistant to go. And so what did God do? He sent a great fish that swallowed Jonah and transported him there. It's a miracle, obviously. And this passage is saying to the leaders that Jesus is going to go through a three-day drama. But his is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, he's going to be buried. He's going to the tomb. He's going to the grave. And it's part of his strategic mission to accomplish salvation in this world. Interesting parallel that he would make here. And so Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? What's your assessment? Who do you think I am? And Peter answered, you are God's Messiah. And he said, the Son of Man, and here's, is this figurative or is this literal? How would you take this? The Son of Man must suffer many things. Last week's message was on that suffering. Be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. It's hard to make that anything different than literal, isn't it? Anyone who would say that to you would just go, wow, you're going to die. But you're saying that you're going to rise again on the third day. Remember, subjective claims like, I'm the best cook in the county, that you can kind of slide by on, can't you? But as soon as you say something that is verifiable like this, that I'm going to be executed by a third party who's an expert in execution, and on the third day after my death, I'm going to rise from the dead, it's going to be very easy to verify whether it's true, whether it's false, whether it doesn't happen, or whether it does happen. And the great news about the gospel is that Jesus anticipated his death. And he anticipated his resurrection with purpose because he did it all on purpose. Jesus' claims forecast his response to the opposition, his execution, and his purpose for going there willingly. And so we look at a second area for believing in this resurrected Jesus, literally, physically, and that is the reasonable evidences. If you want to turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your Bible, it's considered the passage on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're going to spend the rest of our time there today in this passage. What are the reasonable evidences according to the Apostle Paul? who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. 
First of all, the church is a reasonable evidence. How is it that there are several billion people on the face of the earth right now that claim to be believers worldwide, and they all have this similar, same understanding that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our leader, that he rose from the dead on the third day, and that he's alive to give you eternal life. See, anybody, anybody could say before they died, uh, I, I'm going to give you eternal life. But you see, it's the one who takes it to the grave, rises from the dead, is alive, and then he offers it to you. That's the person you're going to believe. And I propose to you, as Paul did then, that that's why the church exists. That's why hundreds of millions, several billion people on the face of this earth profess this faith. And by the way, that's why the Apostles' Creed says that he arose again on the third day. It says again because it says that he has not only lived before, but after his death, he took his life back, so he arose again on the third day, and he lives to offer you this life. And so he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, now brothers and sisters, that's you, that's the church, he's, he's covering everybody. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand. You're committed you believe it. It's the church, and that's why we exist. By this gospel, you are saved if you, have firm, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And this gives you the clue why he's writing some of these words, because not everybody in the Corinthian church network was a true believer. Some were just visitors. Some were regular attenders. Some were curious some were connected through friends and family, and so, yeah, they were listening, but they weren't yet to the place where they had made this commitment to believe in the resurrected Christ. In other words, the Apostle Paul is telling you that the essential part of the gospel is not just that Jesus died on the cross for your sins to pay for him, but that he went to the grave and he conquered death so that he could give you eternal life. Is that something you're interested in? A second proof that Paul offers us in this passage is the scriptures themselves. And this would be a whole sermon in itself. I could, I could take you through Old Testament passages. I could take you to Psalm 16. I could take you to Psalm 22. I could take you to Isaiah 53. I could take you to Psalm chapter 3, verse 15. And I could spend a whole message and more, a series on the Old Testament and where it, it told you of the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come and give his life for you, but, the, but that the grave would not hold him that God would not abandon his body to decay in the grave. In other words, he would resurrect him. And so, Paul says, 
For what I received, and this would have been the Old Testament knowledge of these things, I pass on to you as of first importance. Now, not just importance, but this is the priority of the important things. This is the number one of the most important things that this happened, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. When I work with sheep, I understand just how independent they are and they do their own thing and they get in trouble. They get on their back, they fall, they roll over, they get on their back, they're in trouble. Uh, You know, their backs are coated with things that hold them. They get in the briars, they get in the blackberries, they get stuck there. Uh, When I was tagging sheep, I experienced just how strong they are. It's not an issue of strength. Maybe it's an issue of intelligence. But the Old Testament uses that metaphor saying, all we like sheep have gone astray. And so let's say that this is the record book of, of every time I blew it, every time I thought a bad thought, every time I said a bad word, every time I, I, I was mean to somebody, whatever. The whole list. I would have to probably have a couple volumes here and I'm responsible for that. It's on me, right? It's on me. But Isaiah 53, 6 doesn't leave it there. It tells you what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would do. Though all we like sheep have gone astray, the Lord would lay on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquities of us all. Forgiven. Free accepted, loved. And so he died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that's the hope that we have. And then there's the eyewitnesses themselves, the people who had seen what took place, after he rose from the dead. And so he appears to Cephas, then the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the very same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, in other words, died. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. When it says here that most of whom are still living He's saying something to his audience, to his readers, to his listeners. And he's, he's saying it to those people that were right there in that generation, who many of whom had seen or heard of Jesus Christ. And he's saying all these people, hundreds of people, saw Jesus alive after his burial. Three days later, in the 40 days leading up, to when he ascended into heaven. Hundreds of people. And he's saying, most are still living. Why don't you go interview them? If you're having a hard time believing me, why don't you go talk to many dozens of other people who are accessible to you that you can go talk to who have the experience who empirically witness Jesus Christ. Some even sat with him on the Sea of Galilee when he cooked a fish and he broke the fish and he gave it to them and he ate food with them. 
A hallucination doesn't do that. A ghost doesn't eat a fish. A ghost doesn't cook a meal. Everybody, hundreds of people, don't have the very same hallucination. The only way that's explainable is if they had the very same experience with a bodily, physically resurrected person who physically made those appearances and did those physical things and they were witnesses to it, go interview them. Go talk to them. The fourth proof he offers is himself. He was the antagonist of antagonists. He was the hater of haters. He went around the region getting approval from leadership to go into houses and to take Christians out of their homes and to imprison them. That was, the, that was Saul before he became Paul. And he says, last of all, Jesus appeared to me as to one abnormally born. In other words, he came in late. He came, became a believer late. For I'm the least of the apostles. He's the last of the apostles that were called. And do not even deserve to be called apostle. Here's the reason why. Because I persecuted the church of God. And you can hear his angst, can't you? He so regrets what he did against Jesus and against his church. And now he's saying, I have an opportunity to serve. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his, by, by his grace to me, it was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that worked in me. And so he served the Lord with, with vigor, with greater passion than when he was against Jesus. He served the Savior. And the fifth proof he offers is a unified message. He says, whether then it's I or other preachers, they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. He's saying the message from all these different sources is the same. It's kind of like saying, well, here after the Apostles' Creed is produced, Say, see, here's a document showing that churches, different denominations worldwide all agree on this. We believe this together. And he's saying that the message is still the same. I told you I was going to tell a story for the teens because when I was 17, I had a lot of uh, friends who were not uh, biblical Christians. They were extra-biblical Christians that followed other books. And they were, they were persuading me. They were evangelizing me in their own way toward their own religious system. And I rem whether it was on the bus, whether it was at school, whether it was in sports, I, would, I had all these different friends and they were all working on me. And so finally, I, I just got a little frustrated because, see, I'd gone to church a few times, a, a good church, a good evangelical church that taught Bible. And I, I wasn't a really good listener because I didn't go for good motives. I, I just went a few times. And yet the things I was hearing from these people, they were telling me, you know, uh, they were saying things like uh, the Christian church isn't unified. Uh, they believe all different things. And they even gave me illustrations about that. And so one day I remember that uh, I, I was working for my dad that summer and I remember the day that he, he called me in the bedroom and said, Son, I'm sick. Uh, take the day off. And I remember this thought came to my mind. 
go read your Bible. And so I found that red Bible a month ago at my mom's house, that red Bible that I took. And I walked to the house that we were remodeling and I sat in an old rocking chair that was dusty from the work we had done and I got the dust off and I sat there for seven days and read through the whole Bible. My dad wasn't able to work that whole week and yet that was my opportunity to read this for myself. Yes, I did take a lunch break. I did go to supper. But for seven days, I read this book through. And when I was finished, you know what I understood? I understood this. And so, my next activity was to spend that year calling every religious leader in my town and asking to interview them with nine questions. I sat down, I wrote out the nine questions I had. I didn't care, care which religion it was. I, didn't, I went to everyone and every, every facility, every person I could meet with, and I asked them the same nine questions. You know what I discovered? I discovered this, that the message is unified. It didn't matter which denomination they were from. I found out on my nine questions, they were an essential, basically they were agreeing. When I got off on a few tangent stuff, I found where they disagreed, but that was side stuff. On the basics, they were all in agreement. They were then, they are now. That's what, it, what I discovered in my research as a teenager. After a year, I concluded the Christian church is unified. They disagree on some secondary side issues, but on the basics, we're together. How could that be? It's the work of God. It's how God keeps his people together by preserving his word. Well, what is the logic of Paul for those that he wrestled with who were in the church, around the church, friends with the church people, but yet they didn't quite believe about the resurrection, what you've studied so far today, well, let's do Resurrection Logic 101 with the Apostle Paul. First of all, the first implication of not believing in the resurrection is this, that it's not one or the other, it's both. Both are linked. What are linked? The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of individual believers. They're linked. You don't separate them. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... Okay, Jesus' resurrection. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead, individual believers? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Okay, that's the logic. Implication number two. Things have to match up. There has to be consistency. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised... Now, this is theoretical, if, see if, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Because a dead person cannot give you anything. Only a resurrected Savior can give you life and eternal life. Implication three, being a truthful witness, telling the truth. 
not lying. Paul says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses. He's saying that's what we would be if if what you're proposing is true. We would be a false witness about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. And so he's running with the logic. If individual believers die and stay in the grave, he's saying, then the Jesus thing isn't true either because that's what Jesus promised he was going to do. That's why we studied the claims of Christ today first. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Notice he's flipped that around. He said it two ways. He just flipped it around. He's covering all the bases. Logic 101. Implication four, the impact What is the impact? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Because Paul points out that the resurrection of Christ completes the salvation message. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. He rose from the dead to defeat sin and death. Remember, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. If he conquers death, he conquers sin and its consequences. Implication five, the outcome. What is the outcome? Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, are lost. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then they won't be raised individually as believers. Implication number six, it's either hope or despair. Which do you want to live in? If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Christian faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he rose from the dead, he can give you hope and eternal life. If he did not, he can't. That's the honest logical assessment of the Apostle Paul. You see, the Bible is honest about the whole resurrection issue. If it happened, it's the most important event in world history. And what does 1 Corinthians 15:20 say to us? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He rose first, He can deliver to you if you will believe in him and trust him for eternal life. So why was the round stone of Christ's tomb moved away that day, that third morning? So that he could go out, that Jesus could go out? Or so that we could look in and realize the truth about the real meaning and purpose of life? That death isn't the end. For those who have faith in Christ, it's just the beginning because a living Savior gives you eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that your Son came on the mission to seek and to save people who are lost and not connected to God. I pray today 
that the resurrected Jesus would so touch the hearts and minds of people here right now that they would make that decision whether to believe in him, that they would desire to know him, that they would like their sins forgiven, and they would like to know for sure that even if their body dies, that their soul would go directly to the presence of Jesus Christ, the living Savior, who rules at the right hand of God in heaven, and that they could spend eternity with the God of love and forgiveness and to experience life eternal. If you want that gift, if you've decided you want that gift, would you just slip your hand up for me and I'm going to pray for you. Just raise your hand if you want that gift of eternal life. Yes, 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 yes. Yes and yes. Yes. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I thank you that they've already made their decision. Their hand went up because they already chose you. They already chose to believe you. And so we join with them in giving thanks for their wonderful decision and that the joy of the Lord would touch their lives now and forevermore. Amen? Have a great day, guys. Blessings. Blessings.